Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Megan Davis and Professor George Williams AO, two of Australia's leading constitutional law experts from the New South Wales, University of New South Wales Faculty of Law, to Books, 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 to talk about their book, Everything You Need to Know About the Uluru Statement from the Heart, published in May this year by New South Publishing. This book is a culmination of two decades of collaboration between Professor Williams and Professor Davis, who both joined the University of New South Wales Law Faculty in the early 2000s. Patricia Anderson AO, who was the co-chair of the Referendum Council, which we will be talking about later today, has described this book as a must-read for all Australians as the nation prepares for a referendum. It is a vitally important book written for all Australians who have accepted the Uluru invitation and are walking with us in a journey of the Australian people for a better future. I'll start now by introducing Professor Megan Davis. Professor Davis is the Balnaves Chair in Constitutional Law and the Director of the Indigenous Law Centre at the Faculty of Law, University of New South Wales. She's also the Pro Vice-Chancellor. She's the Chair of the United Nations Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous People, she was a member of the Prime Minister's Referendum Council, whose work led to the Uluru Statement of the Heart, which is the subject of this book. In November 2021, Professor Davis will, with other members of the Council, be accepting the Sydney Peace Prize for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. She is a cobble cobble woman from the Barungum Nation in southwest Queensland. Megan, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Hi, thank you for having me. Now to Professor George Williams, AO. Professor Williams is the Anthony Mason Professor and a Ciencia Professor at the University of New South Wales. He's also the Deputy Vice-Chancellor. He has written and edited 37 books on a broad range of topics, including on the High Court, the Australian Constitution and human rights in Australia. He has advised widely on constitutional law matters, including the making of treaties and constitutional recognition to parliaments and to organisations such as the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. He has participated in many debates about constitutional change in Australia, and he has been a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Canberra Times, an on-air analyst for ABC TV, and is currently a columnist for The Australian. George, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Pleasure. So we're going to start with an introduction just to explain to listeners a little bit about the Uluru Statement and a First Nations voice. In your book, you provide an excellent history of attempts by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to achieve constitutional recognition. Those efforts culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart on the 26th of May 2017. Now, it's my sense that a lot of listeners will have heard about the Uluru Statement and its call for a First Nations voice without really understanding much about them. 
And that is very much due to the fact that there's been a lot of misinformation and muddying of the water by politicians and by the media. So we're going to start this conversation today with me asking you to just explain a little bit to our listeners what the Uluru Statement is and what a First Nations voice to Parliament means. Megan, I'll start with you. What is the Uluru Statement from the Heart? How did it come about? Uh, The Uluru Statement from the Heart um, was uh, a statement that was released by First Nations uh, delegates to a First Nations Constitutional Convention in 2017, May 2017. And um, the statement was the culmination of a process that was led by the Referendum Council, a mechanism set up by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to try and bring to fruition this kind of almost decade-long at the time commitment of um, the major parties and the minor parties to the constitutional recognition of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Australian Constitution. And so the Referendum Council process um, was a process in which, in some ways, consultation with Indigenous uh, communities um, was being retrofitted. So ideally it should have come at the beginning, um, but instead um, this kind of deliberative process um, uh, was conducted um, through the Referendum Council uh, with uh, communities right across Australia, led by the land councils, um, to, to elicit from communities themselves what meaningful constitutional recognition might mean. The the result of those constitutional dialogues, and there were 13 of them, was um, a meeting out at Mutajulu, out at Uluru, um, where uh, the work or the decision-making by the regions was endorsed uh, to determine what, what is the priority in terms of constitutional recognition and that was what the Uluru Statement, I suppose, encapsulated. It was a framework um, that we decided to adopt um, to convey to the Australian people the exigency of constitutional recognition because, of course, 2017 um, is a lot, was a long way down the track from where constitutional recognition kind of initially um, uh, kicked off, Nicole. It's been around for decades and decades, this idea of what constitutional recognition might look like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And um, there was a little bit of it discussed around the 1999 referendum because there was a singular mention of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the preamble put up by Howard. And then four days before Howard's election in 2007 against Kevin Rudd, he announced that he would be running a referendum to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Australian Constitution. So um, it really took that kind of 10-year you know, period until the Uluru Statement where we finally heard from the First Nations peoples through these multiple government processes of what uh, constitutional recognition looks like to them. And the Uluru Statement... Um, says that it looks like this. It's a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament. It is then the creation via that constitutional voice, a Makarata commission to settle 
agreement-making and truth-telling across the continent. Um, and we decided that, like in 67, we would not, you know, we would work, we would fight really hard to get politicians to support this because they don't think about Indigenous policy much and they certainly don't think about big-picture nation-building things anymore. And so we decided out at The Rock, or at least traditional owners and the people there, that we would, rather than hand a bark petition to Malcolm Turnbull with the Uluru Statement written on it, uh, we decided we would read out a very simple statement to the Australian people um, explaining why we need, why we want to do this, why we need their help, and we issued it as an invitation to the Australian people to walk with us in a journey of all Australians for what we called a better future. And so that really is what the Uluru Statement mm. from the Heart is. The main point, isn't it, that is that the idea for the Referendum Council was for Indigenous people to consider various forms of constitutional recognition and to decide on what their preferred one was. And the preferred one was, unanimously, as we'll, we'll come to see, a First Nations voice to Parliament. George, what does that actually mean? What would its role be and who would make up that voice? What would its structure be? Well, when we talk about a voice, we're, we're talking about a mechanism for being heard. I mean, it's as simple as that. But um, what the Uluru Statement identifies um, is a failure to be heard and the consequences of that. Um, and, of course, that is the record of many, many years of failed policymaking in Australia, laws being made for Aboriginal people without their voice being part of that conversation. And the Uluru Statement identifies as the first priority, rectifying that. So the idea is that you would have a body, an advisory body that would sit alongside Parliament, like many other bodies that we have. We have productivity commissions, we have law reform commissions. There are many examples of this. This would be one though that would be special in that it would enable the voice of First Nations to be heard. Um, people would be chosen for that body. We don't yet know the process for that. That's something we need, again, Indigenous people to tell us what the right process is for that. But once they're chosen, they would look at laws that are coming into Parliament. You might take a good example of the laws that uh, dealt with uh, the problem of sexual abuse in the Northern Territory many years ago, and uh, you would have a voice in that case that would provide advice from the Indigenous perspective. What's the right response? How do we deal with this complex social problem that is so intertwined with the long history of Indigenous peoples in the Northern Territory and their interaction with government. The voice would also provide an opportunity to be sent issues, maybe forthcoming policies and laws to get advice. So even before those things are drafted, the government has a vehicle for listening and making sure Indigenous peoples have a say. So essentially, it's, it's all of those things, but at base, it's just the opportunity to have a say when too often that is not available. George, would the advice be binding on Parliament? No, there's never been any suggestion that it would be binding. Um, um, and that's because, I mean, the voice in many ways is very traditional. It actually respects parliamentary sovereignty. It recognises that Parliament makes the laws. Elected representatives have the final say. This would be another particularly important point of advice. But Parliament would have opened to it the ability to ignore that advice if it wanted to. Come with a cost, you would say, to ignore the voice of Indigenous peoples on an important matter affecting them. But that's a political decision. And this would not have any power to make binding decisions or in any way to undermine the existing institutions. Let's talk now then a little bit more detail about what you've talked about, Megan, how the Uluru Statement came about. 
So in December 2015, the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, together with the then leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, established the Referendum Council. Could you tell me a little bit about what its role was and who were some of the members? I know that there were Indigenous as well as non-Indigenous members. Yeah, so um, I suppose the first thing to say about the Ref Council is that, um, you know, we're sitting here in, what is it, 2000? I forget where we are with um, all of our lockdowns. We're in 2021 um, and in and since 2010 we've had 10 years of constitutional recognition, so 10 years of um, government processes, so processes set up by the state. Um, so there's been seven processes and nine reports established, I mean, done in that time. So just, just by way of background, that's what we're looking back at when we think about um, the work of the Referendum Council. Um, so the Referendum Council came, I suppose, um, after three other mechanisms before it on constitutional recognition. So the first being Gillard's Prime Minister's Expert Panel on the Recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution, um, and they handed down a report where they made a number of recommendations which actually came to form the basis of what the Referendum Council took out to um, Aboriginal communities in the dialogues. Um, and then after the expert panel kind of report and process, um, there was a review panel which was led by John Anderson, the former um, leader of the National Party, and he 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 did a whole consultation process and wrote a final report um, in 2014. So um, you know, two years after the expert panel's report, and then across the top of all of this, we have a joint select committee on constitutional recognition as well, um, and that ran from 2013 to 2015, led by Nova Paris and Ken Wyatt. They produced three reports: an interim report in 2014. July 2014, I think it was, and then a progress report in October 2014, and then a final report in January 2015. So the Referendum Council kind of comes after all of that. Um, and so by mid-2015, it was apparent to us that we had a lot of people in the community that were um, not interested in constitutional recognition, at least the opportunity of it. Um, and so myself and Patrick Dodson and Noel Pearson and Kirsty Parker um, who was at the time the chair of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, the kind of national peak body that had been set up by Labor and Macklin under Rudd, we went to see Abbott to say, I mean, Abbott was very interested in constitutional recognition but in a kind of a minimalist, symbolic way. Um, and he was working closely with, you know, the recognised campaign and Labor about, you know, where they were heading on constitutional recognition. And it was quite clear to Noel and Patrick and myself and Kirsty that they were talking about a symbolic form of recognition. Mm. So it's important for, you know, your listeners to, to keep in mind that the word recognition is, is it just means acknowledgement in the dictionary. But, um, but in legal and political terms, it's a very complex um, notion recognition and it can mean symbolic statements in a constitution, something very poetic, something that is just symbolic, but but there's a spectrum. So at one end there's the, the symbolism and at the other end there's the substantive reforms, something like Nunavut in Canada, like a new territory, for example, or, or a new provision in the constitution, like, um, again, Canada, Section 35. But, but the, the important 
point for your listeners to keep in mind is that symbolic is it sits at the weak what we call the weak end of the spectrum. So mm. it's it's called weak recognition because mm. it doesn't actually require the state to do anything and it doesn't stop the state from doing anything. And at the strong end of the recognition um, kind of spectrum uh, are things that you know, compel the state to do things or stop the state from doing things, but they they have the force of law and that's the really important point is they compel the state um, in a way that symbolism can't achieve. And so that's where mid-2015, that's where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander minds are at, right, in terms of substantive changes that will make a difference to our people's life, not dissimilar to what we heard on the expert panel with Gillard's expert panel. Australians were saying at the time then that they thought symbolism was a waste of time, that if you were going to go to all the effort of getting Australians to a ballot box on a referendum, you want to make it something that's going to actually make a difference to people's lives. So there is actually an alignment between the Australian kind of people who have been involved in these processes and been polled or actively participated and Aboriginal communities. So mid-2015, we make this point to Abbott. He decides to run a a leaders meeting at Kirribilli just to check that we're that we're telling the truth, I guess, or, or just to hear from other leaders. And he calls in 40 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders from land councils and peak bodies and other things, brings us all to Kirribilli House with Shorten, and basically everybody had the same message for him. You know, we don't want constitutional recognition if it's symbolism, sorry. So he goes, okay, we'll set up another mechanism. So he gets kicked out. Turnbull comes in and Turnbull sets it up. Um, and um, and so the Referendum Council's actual, you know, terms of um, reference were to look at, you know, what kind of options are likely to bring um, the Australian people, um, are likely to get support from the Australian people so that we can go to a, a referendum. Um, so... Our terms of reference required us to kind of lead a national consultation and community engagement about constitutional recognition. Um, and the terms of reference also allowed us to have a concurrent series of Indigenous design and led consultations. I know that you were one of the members. Could you just tell us about who some of the other members were, Indigenous and non-Indigenous? Yeah, so it was a really great um, experience, actually. Um, it was very broad cross-section. So um, there was uh, Amanda Vanstone, who'd been um, the ATSIC minister and had been around when ATSIC was abolished. Um, uh, Former Chief Judge Murray Gleeson, who was really deadly, actually, really active and awesome member of the panel. Yeah, former Chief Justice of the High Court, Court, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he was really deadly. Um, You know, Mark Liebler and Pat Anderson, they chaired it. Um, And Mark Liebler is is a senior partner in a a law firm, Arnold Block Liebler? Arnold Block Liebler, yeah, he is. He is. And he was also the chair of the um, expert panel as well. So there was Mm -hmm. that continuity there. Um, There was Christina Keneally from Labor. Um, Noel Pearson was on it. You said Pat Anderson. She was the chair. Uh, Tell me a bit about her. So Pat Anderson is... um, an Aboriginal woman who has been involved in the community control health sector. She's one of the people that led to the establishment of the Aboriginal medical services. Um, so she's been around for a, for a very long time. She's currently the chair of the Lowerture Institute, um, which leads, you know, the nation in terms of research on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Um, she was also one of the authors 
with Rex Wild, um, SC of the uh, Little Children uh, Sacred Report. Um, uh, and that report, although, you know, it had nothing to do with Pat, but that report was the report that led to the Northern Territory intervention. So it was a really diverse group of people, wasn't it? It was people from yeah. both sides of politics. It was senior lawyers the most senior, the former Chief Justice of the High Court, and I think it was about 15 people, is that right? Yeah, and Natasha Stutter-Spoyer yeah. and Michael Rose and Gallery and Apingi. So it was very, it was a very, and Andrew Dimitri, I think I said that from the AFL, but it was a very, um, yeah, in, ter- in terms of, you know, Murray and, you know, there was a, it was a very kind of distinguished um, panel, in, including, as I said, Amanda Vanston, who's very, you know, thoughtful on, she'd been there in terms of Indigenous prayer affairs policy and um you know also was an incredible contributor so it was a very it was it was absolutely a cross-section I think Jane McAloon too I think this like used to be the senior counsel with BHP um so so big yeah a very kind of um diverse committee council and Megan um, its real role was to consult particularly with the Indigenous community and then to come back and report on what their preferred form of uh, recognition was so I know that you were very much involved in designing the method for consultation. Could you just tell us a little bit about the thirteen regional dialogues and how what happened at them, who attended, how they were run? Yeah, so I was charged with designing what the dialogues might look like, um, and that um, was um, you know it was a long and difficult job because our people were kind of and still are, but at the end of their tether when it comes to consultations or as they call them, con- consult-telling, I think they call them, where people just come out, tell them stuff and disappear and they never hear again from them. And so we didn't want to do the same. We didn't want to impose the same thing upon them. Um, constitutional reform is like a once-in-a-generation opportunity. It was such an incredible um, opportunity for people to grasp and run with. And so we needed to work out a way that they felt safe um, and they felt like they were in control so we 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 started thinking about the dialogues very early on. We actually had a meeting about what they might look like on the very first day that the council met. The Aboriginal members met the night before and nutted out what we thought might it look like around the country. What we I mean, obviously we couldn't meet with every single Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander per, person, but um, we thought you know we are a you know a, a culture that is a collective that is a gerontocracy. So it was really important to ensure that whatever we do, um, we would have a sample of First Nations people, um, but we would privilege our traditional owners and our cultural authority in those meetings because then um, the nature of cultural protocol is that, you know, the rest of the First Nation members will understand and, you know, support the approach that might might be adopted. So we decided that we would um, get the land councils to auspice the dialogues because that's where the bulk of our traditional owners sit. Um, and the invitation list was to be 60% traditional owners or, or cultural authorities, they're our old people, and 20% would be our Aboriginal organisations, so the organisations that do all the heavy lifting in the working community, um, so legal services, health services, um, cultural groups, rangers, all sorts of types of groups. And then the last 20 would be up to each region to decide who the individuals would attend, but it was meant for individuals. So, you know, stolen generations or famous leaders in the movement and the struggle 
or, you know, Grandmothers Against Removal, like all of the many different, we had a lot of young people turn up, all of the many different people um, that would be interested in constitutional reform could attend um, and different different dialogues around different systems for that. Some were handpicked and others wrote a little expression of interest and was selected and that's how we got our kind of 100 people in every all 13 sites. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it was designed in a way, we did a lot of research on um, groupthink, for example, because we had a number of options that had been sent to us or agreed to by Turnbull and shorten, and they agreed to all the expert panel recommendations plus treaty plus voice to parliament. So they were the options that Turnbull and Shorten gave us permission for. Um, I didn't want um, dialogues where people sometimes in our kind of community meetings people are don't talk because they're not senior enough, um, or they don't talk because they might be women and and feel intimidated, um, or you know, you've, I've seen people come in beer meetings and nobody gets to talk because everybody's too fearful. And we wanted to have an environment where people were fully informed using the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the notion of free, prior to informed consent. Although it is a First Nations-based thing, we wanted everyone participating in it to, to feel free to express an opinion um, and we didn't want it being hijacked by groups who had preconceived ideas of what they wanted it to be. So we didn't want, like, a treaty group coming in and just dominating we needed people to go through a really um structured process so it was a structured process over three days um that involved civics education and it involved legal education as well so that we could walk all of the mob through the options that the government had allowed us to take to them there were five options weren't there there were five options for recognition that you were authorized to take and the idea was that you would ultimately come up with a consensus about one of them. Um, we counted seven all up because they we we did have treaty and um, voice as well. Um, section twenty five that so deleting section twenty five that could, contemplates the possibility of a state government excluding um, Australians from voting on the basis of their race. Um, you know, Gleeson, so the panel that I sat on were adamant that that was a dead letter. And that there was no use taking that out for a yes or no kind of like let's debate whether we so so we didn't include that we talked about it in the dialogues but everybody accepted that it isn't functionally a um, a section that has any kind of valid operation today. What happened, as I understand it, is that there was a consensus from all of the thirteen regional dialogues. What emerged was that they unanimously supported one form of recognition and what was that yeah so that was the voice to parliament so every single region uh nominated that first um and so the uluru convention um really was just each of the regions coming to uluru reading out what the record of meeting was in their their meeting so everybody had to agree on that record of meeting before the end of the meeting um, and then we pulled together, they read out what their priorities were and we pulled together the stats on which options were the most, um, you know, prominent. And, um, yeah, Voice to Parliament was the number one. It was a consensus right across the continent. Megan, when you say the Uluru Convention, that was the National Constitutional Convention, which was held at Uluru in May. And I think there were about 250 delegates that attended and and that that the purpose there was not to make a decision but it was to really endorse the work that had been done by the regional 
dialogues. And that then led to the drafting and adoption of the Uluru Statement. I gather that you were very much involved with this, with the actual drafting of the Uluru Statement. And I was wondering, who came up with that idea, that very beautiful, gracious idea, pulling together the consensus and then putting it in the form of an invitation in that way? And, and who actually drafted the Uluru Statement? I think um, in, t- in terms of the decision to actually issue it as a statement to the Australian people, uh, you know, it was, it was really, um, it, it came from a lot of, it, so everything that we ever did came from the people who participated in, in the conventions, including Uluru. The Uluru Statement, if you look at each and you read, um, the Uluru Statement is actually 18 pages long because it includes an Aboriginal version of Australian history. And when you read the at what's called Our Story, that's what it's called, you can see the Uluru Statement in, in Our Story. You can see how we've pulled out different lines and put it into fashion into the Uluru Statement. And look, the Uluru Statement from the heart was written by a number of us over, I don't know, it must have been 12 hours or something. We finished at 4am. We were pretty tired and then um, had to deliver it that morning, I think, at um um in, to the to the to the mob, and it got endorsed unanimously. What law reforms did it ask for? So the primary thing is is a is a referendum to have a enshrined in, in the constitution a constitutional voice to parliament. So that's the primary reform. Um, and then and then the reason why the Uluru statement was written is because it speaks to the other agendas that Australia has to attend to. And one is um, the agreement making that needs to be done between First Nations in, and and the state, um, and so that's what we call treaty. Makarada is the word that you know Galaroy gave us um, or allowed us to use in this process. It means the coming together after a struggle. So Nicole, one of the things that's at the heart of the Uluru Statement is that a lot of the dialogues are really critical of the reconciliation movement and reject reconciliation as the framework. They say reconciliation is the wrong word, um, that it means that there was a relationship beforehand um, and you're reconciling. But one of the things many dialogues said was we have not met yet. And the Uluru Statement is that gesture. It is um, it is asking Australians to come and meet us for the first time at The Rock, um, to listen to the grievances that we have and then to walk with us to help us convince the Australian political class that this is a really important thing for the nation to do um, and that, you know, as Australians we're going to take the lead on on this because they represent us. And so um, that really I think is at the core of, um, of the Uluru Statement is us coming together after a struggle. Megan, as you said, it ends with an invitation. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. You were the one who read out that statement for the first time to the National Convention and to the Australian people. And I wanted to ask you, how did that feel? Yeah, I, I can't. I remember the one out at The Rock that was on television, but I don't remember really the one inside. I was, We were pretty nervous and anxious about everything for that meeting. Um, but, no, I mean, you know, I felt pretty honoured to have um, worked with these people, you know, and and... You know, the community wasn't in a good place when we went out and did these consultations and, and you know, we had to really talk them into participating. Is that just because we, they were sick of it, Megan, because there'd been so many consultations and so many committees and nothing had come of, of them? 
it wasn't recognition so much. I mean, they didn't like, there was a thing called the Recognise Campaign at the time and they really hated that. So we had to convince them we weren't the Recognise Campaign. But it's more that government, um, they're just they're just tired. They're just tired. And um, I think when Abbott was elected, he introduced something called the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which saw all of the Aboriginal money ripped from communities and put into another bucket. And so what you saw was a lot of the infrastructure and jobs and employment and what were the remnants of the Whitlam self-determination policy just dismantled overnight. And so you had communities that, um, and we know now the Australian National Audit Office backs up what the mob said in the dialogues, right? These decisions were made um, in a really arbitrary fashion where mm. bureaucrats um, kept no record keeping. There's no evidence of how a decision was were made and why. But the bulk of the money in the first two rounds went to um, corporations with reconciliation action plans which, um, you know, really spoke to, I think, the animosity in communities towards the reconciliation process. Mm. So something like 70 to 80% of the money went to non-Indigenous um, entities. And so in some of the places where we work and have been and visited and worked on constitutional reform like Yarrabah, 40 minutes outside of Cairns, they, um, they lost control of a lot of their programs and they were now being delivered by Save the Children and other NGOs who drove in from Cairns to deliver them to communities. So the disempowerment and the lack of autonomy that has come as a consequence of that policy setting has been really devastating. And so they just were um, not in the mood um, and they certainly, because of the policy setting, couldn't understand why recognition would be on the table. So um, it was quite so, an achievement, wasn't it, then, to get all of them to the table at these regional dialogues and then to actually achieve consensus. And that consensus was mm -hmm. that the main reform was to be a voice to parliament and that that was to be enshrined in the constitution. George, I want to ask you about that now. So the idea of the voice, I think a lot of people have heard talk about this voice and, and they don't really know what it's made, what its function would be. My understanding is that it would be an Indigenous body whose role would be to advise Parliament on laws and policies relating to Indigenous affairs. Is that right? Is that basically what it amounts to? Yeah, I think it's as simple as that. It's, it's a means for uh, Indigenous people to be heard in making laws that affect them and their communities. No suggestion it would be binding. They won't be making laws. That's Parliament's job, but just a way of being heard so that a vital perspective is not missed when laws are made uh, for First Nations people. And no veto power, right? No, no veto power. So there's been suggestions, for example, this might amount to a third chamber of parliament. It's just yes. wrong. Um, could, you, could you deal with that uh, allegation? It was one of these furfies that emerged pretty early in the debate. And I think probably somebody dreamed it up as a way of having a bit of a scare campaign, that perhaps the voice would amount to a brand new chamber of parliament um, Indigenous peoples would have a privileged position that they could make laws themselves. They might have a veto on what our elected representatives would do, but none of that is correct. Um, it's just an advisory body. We have many advisory bodies already in our system of government. This would be another one, a particularly important one, but it's actually not possible or, or even sensible to set up a third chamber in that way. So it's, it's a bit of rhetoric that sadly some people don't quite understand how wrong it is and they should just focus on the fact that it's an advisory body with an advisory role. George, I want to talk to you a little bit about why it was that this was the form of recognition that Australia's Indigenous people 
um, selected. You write in your book about how other countries have given a voice to their Indigenous people in various different ways. You write that in Norway, Sweden and Finland, there's a First Nations parliament. In New Zealand, for example, they have seven seats in their parliament reserved for the Maori people. Why did Australia's First Nations people decide not to go for an option like that and instead to ask for a voice to Parliament? Well, I think the first thing to say about those options is they demonstrate again just how normal this is, that in countries around the world um, it is a normal thing to give uh, Indigenous peoples a say over the laws that affect them. And indeed, if you don't give them a say, the odds are the laws won't work. They won't be well calibrated. They won't meet the need. And you'll end up with a disempowered community uh, and a really paternalistic system. In fact, what we've had for decades in this country with a conspicuous rate of a lack of success. Uh, in this case, uh, in the dialogues, um, as Megan has indicated, uh, the people debated all the options. It might have been reserved seats in Parliament. It might have been the other options you've mentioned. But they felt that this was the right way forward. And there's a number of reasons why we can understand that. One is that it fits very well with our existing system of government. It's not a radical change. It's something that's likely to attract broad support across the community, including if we look around the nation, many of our conservative politicians see this as a sensible, modest, workable change. And so it had the potential to have broad support. But at its fundamental, um, again, as Megan has suggested, it moved us beyond symbolic change. Um, this was not about putting words in the Constitution that can be read out and make us feel good. This was actually about structural change that was inserting a new source of authority, a new source of uh, meaning within our system of government that would inform the sorts of laws we make, not directing because it's advisory, but actually would be a substantive, meaningful change that Indigenous peoples felt would actually change the way the nation makes laws and engages with their community. And, George, why is it so important that the voice should be enshrined in the Constitution rather than just in ordinary legislation? Well, I mean, one reason is that we've had a lot of record of all sorts of things being put in ordinary legislation and it's vulnerable. It's chop and change. Um, you can look at whether it be ATSIC, you can look at other advisory bodies, you can look at a range of programs that just haven't survived the political change of government or changing political fortunes. And we're dealing here with something pretty basic, and that is the ability to have a say in the making of laws. Um, it can't be subject and have that level of insecurity to be effective. Remembering, of course, we're dealing with a community that's a couple of percent of the population, so it's always vulnerable to the swings of popular opinion. Um, and that's just not an acceptable basis to have a long-standing structural change to our system of government. But another one is, is that a referendum itself has power. Uh, you look at 1967. Um, that change was pretty modest in 1967. In Could you just explain to our listeners about the 1967 referendum? Well, and there's all sorts of myths, of course. We think about 67 as giving Indigenous people citizenship, didn't do it. Uh, did they get the vote then? No, that happened in 1962. Uh, what it did do is it said the federal parliament can make laws uh, for Indigenous people, which previously they were prevented from doing, and it also removed a clause that stopped the counting of Indigenous people, particularly for things like calculating electorates. Important changes, but nowhere near as large as the popular imagination had thought. And there was huge support, wasn't there? There was 90% support. Our most successful ever referendum, and, and indeed in many ways tracking this process, popular process, strongly backed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, the government itself very reluctant over many years. They had to be dragged 
to the referendum ultimately, and they were, and then we had our highest ever result. And in some ways, I think this is a positive for Megan and other campaigners that the more the government is seen as being a bit reluctant, in some ways the easier it is to convince the people that this isn't a politician's change, this is actually for the people, this is for the community it's seeking to serve. And in 67, 90% are most successful, and it was one of those nation-building moments that changed perceptions, uh, changed our understandings of who we were as a country, but it just left this unfinished business. It, it didn't have the structural change. It didn't build in a voice. And so this referendum is about uh, that next step, um, but just as an important nation-building moment that you cannot replicate through legislation, neither security nor the mandate, and what the Uluru Statement says is they want to walk with the community. They want the community to get behind this. That's what's needed. And frankly, a referendum is the only way of actually doing that. And George, the only element of constitutional change is the insertion of the voice. There are two other things that the um, that the Referendum Council uh, recommended that came through in the Uluru Statement, and that's, as I mentioned briefly with Megan, the Makarata Commission to oversee a process of treaty-making and truth-telling. Now, those things are to take place, as I say, outside the Constitution, but they are also part of the Uluru Statement. Could you just talk a little bit about those aspects? And the sequencing is important um, because, as the Uluru Statement identifies, until you have a voice, it's hard to have a fair treaty process uh, or to have a proper truth-selling process. So you've got to have people at the table first before you can do those other things. But once you've got the voice... Um, it is recognised that uh, Australia does need to have a fair settlement with First Nations. That's what a treaty is. It's simply an agreement. It's not a constitutional change. It might be an agreement between government and a local community about the naming of an area. There might be compensation in some cases. It can deal with a wide variety of unresolved grievances. Uh, and so it's a coming together to solve those things. They're, they're very common. It, it is the settled way of resolving these things. And and sometimes these were treaties entered into when colonisation first occurred, uh, often to authorise the taking of land, um, unusually on very unfair terms. Sometimes they're contemporary treaties, like in Canada, they're still making treaties uh, to this day to resolve this unfinished business, these grievances. So, so they're common. Australia is actually really exceptional. Um, we're the odd one out in not having these arrangements. And we actually have a system of government that was premised upon the exclusion of Indigenous peoples, not resolving these issues. And so hence the Uluru Statement says, hear us, then we want to negotiate a treaty finally after a couple of hundred years. And then thirdly, we do think truth-telling um, is important, but uh, the truth-telling is part of this story. It's not the first thing um, because, if nothing else, we've had a lot of attempts at truth-telling, a lot of reports, a lot of things have happened, but without a voice, it's not clear truth-telling will be effective in the way it should be. So then, of course, after the Uluru Statement in May, in June 2017, the Referendum Council handed down its final report and it endorsed the Uluru Statement and its call for a voice for Parliament. Um, Megan, I'll throw this one to you. What, what was the government response and what's happened since then? Well, the, the initial response was just deathly silence. <laughs> uh, there was silence for about, a, for about a month, I think, until we got our report out. But... Um, Look, the first formal response was the a rejection by um, Malcolm Turnbull to the Referendum Council's recommendations. Um, so that was in about October of 2017, I think. But um, we've we've come a long way since then. But just on his rejection, 
um, it was pretty disappointing given that um, there'd been no public discussion whatsoever of what had come out of the Referendum Council's report. And after, you know, 10 years of this constitutional recognition journey, it was a pretty sudden and ruthless way to try and just shut down um, recognition. But we're still here four years later, which speaks to, I think, I think my colleague Noel Pearson calls it the torment of Malcolm Turnbull's powerlessness um, to take a lot from the Uluru Statement, um, which is it probably had more to do with politics um, than anything else. But um, the world has moved on. He's no longer Prime Minister. And what we've seen is um, the his rejection and then about a month later it was put into a joint select committee um, and that committee was led by Julian Lisa and Patrick Dodson and they spent the year just um, talking to people and hearing people give evidence about, you know, the Uluru process and the reforms that they call for and, um, and I think they came to the end and concluded that there was no other constitutional reform on the table. They did tellingly lament the loss of symbolism because they said that was what, you know, politicians supported in Canberra, but they accepted that this process had made a pretty clear statement from First Nations people that they don't want symbolism. So um, they said the voice was the only viable um, reform that would take us to a referendum, but there needed to be some work done on it. Yeah, so their, their view was there needed to be meat on the bones of what a voice would look like, and they re- recommended a co-design process in which um, the state and Indigenous peoples and the Australian people would all design the voice together, I, and then a referendum could be contemplated after that. So that, that um, would be to sort of work out the nuts and bolts of the, of the voice, the structure, the yeah. number of members, things like that. Yeah, all of that. And... Um, so that was their recommendation and then we had a budget not long after that and Frydenberg or the government put aside $7 million for the co-design process and they also put aside $160 million for the referendum to be run and that $160 million sits in the contingency reserve still for the purposes of a voice referendum. Um, then we had the election. Um, we had a strong indication from Labor under Shorten that they would run a referendum in the next term, Um, although they had quite a robust constitutional policy where they were going to set up a constitutional commission to start running a number of referendums on important things that were plaguing the Australian constitution, such as, you know, citizenship, uh, Section 44 um, and four-year terms again, um, and other, other matters that need to be cleaned up, I think. So, um, that that was their agenda, but they didn't win. Um, and so Morrison, uh, Scott Morrison won and Ken Wyatt became our minister since 2019. Um, and since then you've, we've kind of just got kind of mixed messages, but but no, no, from, from the LNP. What we have seen is a um, co-design process set up just as Lisa and Dodson um, recommended. Um, the Prime Minister has stuck very much to the recommendations of that JSC, meaning um, design the voice, take a look at the voice before making any decisions about what form that voice should take um, at a referendum. And so uh, we've had this year has been spent, COVID was difficult for that committee, this year has been spent, um, they, they produced an interim report on what the voice might look like. Um, and that report is, I, th- I believe, has been handed to the Minister Wyatt, um, and I'm, I'm not sure when it's going to be handed down. What he has said, though, is that 
although the report might be handed down, there will be no action on the voice in this term of parliament, um, which means um, we pick it up again on the other side of um, of the other on the other side of an election. One thing I meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about the regional dialogue, something else that was significant is that there was quite a great deal of public consultation as well, in addition to the regional dialogues. And I wanted to ask you, we've seen what the government's response was. What's the community response been to the idea of a voice to parliament? It's been it's been really incredible, actually. I mean, when I look back on all the work that we've done over ten years, it's 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 at a, it's it's such a radical difference to say the expert panel's recommendation for a non discrimination clause. You know, just didn't kind of capture the Australian people in the same way, um, and um, and 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 so. We've had this overwhelming response from people right across the political spectrum, which has been the really nice thing, um, and of people accepting the invitation, saying they, they they want to walk with us, they want to help. So what we know from the polling over four years, from 2017 to now, is that it runs up up around 60%, um, definitely over 50%. In and favour? In favour, sorry. We've, we've made that very clear to the, to the Prime Minister that, you know, we we say it's in a good it's in good shape to go forth to a referendum because it's got a really strong base, and in that polling via Crosby Text, etc., it's very clear that the nose and the rusted on nose is very small, um, and it's partly what George was alluding to. It's actually quite a logic. It's a very conservative reform that actually is mm-hmm. is is deferential to parliamentary sovereignty, and we worked a lot on that in the dialogues about what kind of reform would be robust, but but fit in with the Australian kind of political temperament, but would actually make a huge difference to our people's lives. And so um, I think, I think um, you know, that polling is it, it, it's, it's consistent and there's new polling that we'll be releasing soon that shows that that's, that's solidifying, it's not going anywhere, it's not going down. Um, the other thing is we, in Ken's process, it had, there was a public process for Australians to make submissions on a voice. And, Nicole, you know from being a lawyer that these law reform proposal processes only get attract a small number of submissions from Australians. Um, And this one got something like 3,000 submissions from the Australian people about um, a voice to parliament. And um, it was 90%, I think it was 80, 89% of submissions are asking for a referendum. So they're saying we support this model, but we want a referendum before you legislate to set up a voice to parliament. So that's quite unusual to see such a huge response. And it's right across the spectrum. It's it's unions, it's teachers, it's the churches have been incredible. It's FECA and all of Multicultural Australia. It's sporting groups. It's corporate Australia who've really led the way on this. It's Australian law firms who just incredibly went out and supported Uluru from the very beginning, actually. So it's it's extraordinary. I've I've had Aboriginal leaders come and say to me, you know, we led the process for negotiating the Native Title Act, but they're like, you know, you you don't have the same organised opposition. Um, you know, we get pieces by the IPA occasionally in the Australian, but but generally there seems to be a sentiment that one Australians are really taking up the offer of Uluru. What what is the promise of a nation that enshrines the voice of these? polities whose ancestors are over 60,000 years old on this continent to enshrine them in our very young democratic framework to recognise their voice as being 
um, integral to who we are as a nation is such an incredible offer. Um, and if and, and and Australians can see it, I think George just summed it up really well that um, you know as politicians resist, and if politicians it just shows Australians um, and blackfellas that this is actually a really important. This is a really important thing for the nation to do together and for Australians to do together. Um, and I think that's where we're headed. I have one question left for each of you, but just before that, Megan, I want to ask you, if somebody listening to this program thinks that they want to do something proactive to support the inclusion of the voice, uh, in to, in, to have the voice in Parliament enshrined in the Constitution to support this, what can they do? What's the most effective thing they can do? I think. Um, I think that um, our list, well, your listeners should sign up to the Uluru Statement. So if they go to ulurustatement.org, that's a little website that me and Bros Dixon and a few other people at UNSW Law set up the day after Uluru with like 200 bucks. Um, and soon it's going to turn into a magnificent butterfly because we've got a website being built behind it. But um, ulurustatement.org is, is, is the website set up by all of the leadership and blackfellas are involved in the Uluru process. And it's our invitation website. It's where we want Aussies to sign up and, and we send out material every week, every two weeks to keep people involved. And on that website is a letter generator where we're asking Australians to write to their local MP. So it's got one of those local MP kind of things, um, tricky little things that I don't understand where you put in your address and it gives you your local MP. And, you know, we we had a nice, Uluru used to did a big talk with Dave Sharma on Instagram Live last week about, how to write letters that are effective to local MPs. And it was really good. He said, you know, we do prefer, we have a pro forma on there, but he says we do prefer meaningful letters. And so we have been asking Australians, you know, if you have something really, you know, meaningful to say, if this means something to you or you might have Aboriginal family in your heritage or, you know, you're just really moved by the Uluru Statement that people fashion their own letter so that their local MP can see how much it means to them as, you know, or means to you as an Australian. So that's that's what I would suggest that they do. Thank you. George, can I just ask you something? Just We won't go into the technical issues in relation to what Section 128 of the Constitution requires in terms of a referendum. Let's just say that it's quite complex and that for whatever reason, most referenda in Australia have failed. Only eight out of 44 have got have got up, have been successful. You, or both of you in your book, outline the best prospects of success for this particular referendum. What are they? Could you just explain what, what, how do we give it the best chance of succeeding this referendum? And, and a lot of this is common sense. Um, I mean, a starting point is that as much as possible, we would like the political parties to be aligned um, in wanting this change. That's not essential, but it's certainly desirable to have that. Um, it's harder to get a referendum up if you've got one of the major parties opposing. Uh, another aspect is that it needs to be owned by the community. Um, if this is seen as a politician's proposal, that tends to be the kiss of death in Australia. So this needs to be grassroots. It needs to be born out of the community. But in fact, you couldn't have this more in spades than the Uluru Statement, which is a community-based statement on behalf of the very people the referendum is designed to help. Um, another aspect is that you need enough community knowledge about these matters to cast an informed vote. Uh, the evidence clearly shows that when the community doesn't know about something, they're likely to vote no. In fact, the old slogan of don't know, vote no, is really powerful in referendums. So hence this book and much of the work that Megan and others are doing, just to give a baseline set of factual information 
that helps people understand enough they can confidently cast a vote. Uh, and when they do, you know, my view is they will likely support this change. And the last one is that you want to have a sound and sensible proposal. It needs to be workshopped. It needs to be tested. This is something that will go in the Constitution for 50, maybe 100 years. And again, the time taken for this, the exhaustive process that people are going through, um, should give people confidence. This is a, a modest, not a radical change, fits well with the existing structures, and every bit is being well workshopped to make sure people can vote yes with confidence. Megan, final question for you. This is a question that you hear, or this is something that you hear people say, how will recognition actually make a change in the lives of Indigenous people? Why is this something that's so important? Can you give your response to that, please? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the voice spoke to something that people felt uh, at a particular time and tell us they still do, and that is uh, a really powerful feeling of voicelessness and powerlessness within our country. And being a kind of constitutional lawyer that, you know, although I grew up here at my mum's place in Eagleby, which is one of the most low socioeconomic areas in the country, you know, I'm at George's, working with George at UNSW, and I don't, you know, listening to people you know, being in positions like ours but then listening to mob talk about how hopeless they feel about the situation is has such a profound impact upon um, your, your thinking about things. And so a lot of the dialogue design read a lot of the material um, to do with voicelessness and powerlessness within, um, within liberal democracies. Um, and that, that leads you to a lot of literature that was done post-German... Um, Jewish concentration camps in World War II about what what happens to a person, their dignity and their soul when they when every when everything that is meant to protect them abandons them, and and they feel like they have no voice in this world, and and a lot of that writing had a profound impact on how I was listening to the dialogues because of the way people were talking about the suicide rates and the dislocation rates and. You know the the numbers in in Northern Territory of young men who are not in the labour force, um, but also aren't on welfare. So there's a myth there on well they're not. There's eighty percent. What are they doing? They're just completely dislocated from from our from from this country, and 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 it's because of this continual um, dislocation that occurs as a consequence of our people feeling like they don't belong. And so one of the consequences of that Indigenous advancement strategy is. And the abolition of ATSIC is we have no champions in Canberra, you know, and we get told, well, you've got the ballot box every three years. Well, that's not helpful. And then we have this big close the gap performative, you know, ritualism that happens every year where the Prime Minister gets up and, you know, laments that they haven't closed the gap. But Australians are really shocked to hear that we're not actually at the table when laws and policies are made about our lives. You know, as of two years ago, the main agency in Canberra that Ken leads didn't even have a single Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in it. You know, like, so we're, we're talking about a, a nation that does not um, listen or to the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait people. Um, and even if they do, they're not hearing what people are saying. And so, you know, we made a very deliberate decision to ensure that we consulted grassroots people who don't have a voice so we did not invite people who had voices. We didn't allow CEOs of big companies, you know, any famous leaders. We didn't allow Patrick Dodson, Mullendary or Linda Burney. We didn't allow anyone who has a voice in those meetings. And they chose this notion of a voice to parliament because constitutionally it means the state is compelled to have us at the table. 
And even though people accepted that parliamentary sovereignty mean, meant you couldn't veto a parliament, like having us at the table, having us give input into laws and policies um, will radically increase the quality of the laws and policies that are now applied and you're more likely to close the gap. But right now we're not included. So it's bureaucracy has their foot on our necks. So bureaucracy runs the show. And then after that, it's it's what sociologists would call black elite. So it's people in in who work in black organizations with very high three, you know, number three-figure salaries, who have a voice, who who are not not accountable back to mob. Yeah. So there's no two-way accountability, which was spoken about a lot in the dialogues. People were as concerned about people reporting back to mob who are Aboriginal as they are the government being accountable. And so it will make a difference. It will make a huge difference because for the first time since probably the abolition of ATSIC, we will actually be involved in the development of laws and policies that impact upon our lives. And and um, and we and that doesn't happen now. It does not happen now. Doesn't seem like too much to ask, does it? Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for this wonderful book, which I really recommend to everybody listening. It spells out in crystal clear terms uh, exactly what it is that is meant, what the Uluru Statement is all about, what the voice for parliament means. Uh, and I really encourage anybody who feels passionately about this issue to, to read this book and to pass it on to their friends. So, uh, Megan and George, a big thank you to both of you for speaking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.